In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. The Ten Commandments formed the core of God's law. Now, Yahweh lays down more regulations, which take the form of case studies to help future judges decide disputes. This particular code deals with slavery and servitude. God is by no means giving his blessing upon the practice of slavery. He had just redeemed his people from servitude to the Egyptians. So how do we understand God's purpose in regulating it? Good morning. Today is Wednesday, December 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Many thanks to the program's underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, I'm happy to welcome our guest to help us look through Exodus 21, and that is the Reverend Philip Hoppe, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, good morning, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning to you. Glad to be with you today to look at God's Word and be strengthened by it. Well, I'm excited to have you on. Now, I know that you've been on Sharper Iron before. I don't know if this is the first time you've been on Thy Strong Word, but it certainly is the first time with me. Have you been on the program before? Uh, I have been on Thy Strong Word before, but as you said, not since uh, you've taken over as the host, and so uh, it'll be a, a new adventure for us together here. Well, welcome back then. I tell you what, uh, because I'm new to having you on the program, and maybe it's been a little while, before we begin, would you tell our listeners a, a little bit about your ministry and how God is working through you and your congregation there in Colby? Sure. I just got uh, here to Colby uh, last January. I'd been serving uh, actually up in Minnesota uh, before that for seven years and have uh, kind of come back uh, closer to home. I uh, grew up on the east side of Kansas and now I'm way out west. Uh, and uh, our congregation here continues to try to reach out in various ways with the gospel and and to, you know, just as we gather together to rejoice in uh, everything that God uh, gives to us. And then, you know, again, trying to, as we go out into our different vocations, take the love and mercy of Jesus with us wherever we go. That sounds wonderful. Well, I tell you what, let's get started in our text today because we have a lot to talk about. And it's one of those, if we don't understand it properly, it can be a very touchy and possibly even misunderstood or misused text, and it is about slavery and servitude. So I think it'd be appropriate that before we dive in, that we start off with prayer. Would you please lead us in prayer? Let's do that. Almighty, good, and gracious God, uh, we come to you this day, and as we open up your word, we do pray, as always, for your Spirit's wisdom. Uh, God, we know that your law is good and holy, and yet uh, many times uh, we have trouble, especially living now, understanding the particularities of the law as you gave it. Grant us to trust your wisdom, but also to understand this uh, truly and fully as you intend it. We ask this in the name of the Word of God, Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Or for those of you who tuned in yesterday, we talked about the Ten Commandments, but we did not finish the chapter. In fact, we were just about four or five <clears throat> pardon me, verses from uh, finishing the chapter. So we never got to the laws about altars. So just for the sake of completeness, I do want to begin by reading those verses. Now, this section here is, is really a transitional section as we go from the giving of the Ten Commandments to uh, the kind of the covenant code or the book of the covenant, rules and regulations, a case law that helps people understand what God wants them to do and how to interpret the, well, the Ten Commandments. But I'm going to read it, and this is going to be chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. And Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. Uh, now, I didn't tell you that you'd have to speak on this text today, but is there anything about this particular verse that you'd like to add, Pastor? Well, I think you are right that it's sort of a, a transition, and yet, you know, it, it sort of reflects upon, of course, that first commandment of uh, having no other gods and particularly not uh, carving images uh, and things like that into, you know, making idols. Um, but I think, you know, overall here, it, it, there is a sense of uh, how do we say this? The humility of worship that, you know, the, the things you you grand because the one who we worship is grand. Now, that's not to say we can't also honor God. We see that in the temple uh, with, you know, various things being used that were of, of great value. But I think he starts off here just with kind of this, you know, simplicity of worship uh, that places the emphasis upon him rather than the items being used. That's an interesting observation, because as you pointed out, once we get to the tabernacle, we have silver bases for the posts and golden clasps and posts covered in gold and intricate embroidery and pictures and images of cherubim. And then here he says literally, don't even hew the stones. Just get them right out of the field and build an altar or make them out of earth or mud. And there, there are some practical things here. Probably you know, that way they can erect altars anywhere. It makes it a lot easier as they're moving through the desert. Um, also, or the wilderness, I should say. And also, uh, as you said, it points to the creator. For instance, if you were to hewn a stone altar, you're changing the characteristics of the stone. So you're using stones just as God made them. Uh, but yeah, it's very fascinating that juxtaposition between how he begins them uh, worshiping him and then how he will eventually have his tabernacle and, and temple built. But yeah, so anyway, that's great. I just wanted to make sure we didn't quite get to that, so I wanted to make sure that we at least touched on it. Now, our section today is mostly about you know slaves, laws, or regulations about slaves and servitude. But before I read any of that, uh, I, I'm sure it's worth setting the stage and giving us a little bit of an introduction for that. Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, in general, this section, like you uh, said sort of in your introduction, is 
you know, it's it's a section that now expands sort of on what God has summarized in the in the in the Ten Commandments, but now takes those um, and really does apply it down to the details of life. And this is one of the amazing things about God's law to me is that it does get right down into the particulars of life. It's not just sort of overarching principles, though there are those. But ultimately, God is not afraid to get right down to what do you do in this situation or or that situation. And that's both helpful and gives us great wisdom. And it also is one of the reasons why the law is so convicting uh, to us. Because again, it, it sometimes when you get particular with the law, uh, it's much clearer uh, how you have sinned against it. But uh, yeah, the judges are going to be using uh, these things to judge uh, different uh, disputes in the church. Uh, and so God gives them this. Uh, as you said, we do have several topics today that kind of, if you just jump in, you know, the, a critic of the scriptures could easily just say, well, gosh, look here, this is just God endorsing slavery. Uh, and we know, sadly, in our own country, uh, that the scriptures were used at times to try to justify the practice of slavery in our country. But I think it's kind of important that we look at this in two ways today. One is that it's really interesting that most of these laws actually speak about sort of protecting the slave rather than, uh, you know, protecting the master. I mean, there are a few things maybe where we can say the master's rights are also being protected, but it's particularly about protecting them. The other thing is we just have to realize from a historical perspective that not all slavery is the same. And that, you know, might sound at first like a, a dangerous statement. But, you know, when you and I, I think, think of slavery, we can't divorce that from the history of our own country and the things we have learned about it. And, you know, we're talking there about a slavery where people were essentially sort of kidnapped against their will and forced into work. And in fact, it's interesting, later in this text, we'll be told, in fact, that that's absolutely forbidden to do. Uh, and yet what we have here, and generally speaking in Israel, uh, is something that was also called slavery, uh, but was much more an arrangement uh, to pay off debts and things like that. So, um, you know, we could say there were kind of three things that occur in slavery in uh, among the Hebrews here, which are, you know, important to get, which is that generally this slavery was uh, chosen or mutually arranged. Now, that's not to say that the people entering into it were just joyous to do so, but they were in a place where they had a debt or some sort of intense poverty where this was necessary for them. Uh, as we'll hear, there was also a limited duration to this slavery, uh, especially if we're talking about, um, you know, unless someone wills it to be different, uh, there was a time limit on it. And then, as we'll see, there was a lot of regulations, again, that protected those that were the slaves. And so I think we have to remember what's actually going on here and not just sort of transfer all of our thoughts about slavery in America to what we hear going on here in Israel. 
I think that's an extremely important distinction. And you're right. Whenever we say, well, there are different types of slaveries, it kind of rings in some people's ears of us trying to justify really any of them. But God deals with his people in a world that is beset by sin. So when he gives them regulations concerning slavery, it it always reminds – and correct me if you think this is off base, but it reminds me of some of the regulations concerning divorce. This isn't to say that this is something that's God-pleasing, but it is to say that God understands that in this world these things are going to happen. And while it's not how God designed the world, he wants to protect his creation, you know, and he could prohibit these things, and he does, but in the same way that he prohibits murder and prohibits um, stealing and prohibits adultery, they still happen. And so God deals with us often not in the ideals, but in the world that we actually live in. Yeah, and I think that's particularly, you know, important here where we'll be told, you know, these are, you know, judgments. And and that word kind of gives us a sense of this is how, um, you know, judgments are going to be made by the judges. And so the importance there is they are dealing very much in the real world. And so, yeah, I think we don't have to say that, you know, everything that is mentioned is thereby sort of completely sanctified by God. I do think we have to also, though, you know, understand understand that, you know, again, people might talk today and not use the same word, but they say, gosh, you know, I've got to keep working for this boss of mine that I don't like, even though, uh, you know, even though I don't like him, I have to keep working for him because I have things I need to pay, right? And I sometimes think when we hear that and then hear how slavery was uh, in, you know, this time, it's not all that different, really, right? And so we do want to say that, you know, the whole idea of sort of having, um, you know, bosses and workers, or again, masters and slaves is something that we see throughout, you know, all of the scriptures. Undoubtedly, why Luther and his small catechism uses verses like these to talk about our relationship with our employers or bosses. You know, most people, if you ask them, would not work if they did not absolutely have to, either to offset their poverty or uh, because uh, they, you know, they need to just survive in the world. And, you know, many of us have vocations, but even in our vocations, uh, we, we are often had to have this element to it where, you know, there's things we have to do that we don't like for the sake of the for the sake of getting things done and for the sake of taking care of our our first article duties, taking care of our family. Um, I tell you what, anything else before we read? I'd like to read just the first, say, 11 verses to get us started, but I want to make sure there anything else you want to say before we do. No, go right ahead. All right. Well, here we go. So I'll be reading from Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11, from the English Standard Version. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. 
he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing, her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Wow. So lots of, you know, if this happens, then this happens. And some of these things, oh, they got a great on our American modern sensibilities. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to make some sense of them for the people. Yeah, no, you're certainly right. And again, there will be times where I think we'll just have to kind of say we, you know, we don't totally understand this and that it does kind of, you know, when we look at it, we're not going to come to just this, oh yeah, well, then that makes perfect sense. But this is where, you know, again, faith calls us to trust that the law of God is good, right? And that we look at it and we say, even when we don't quite understand these things, especially from our modern sensibilities, which may well be wrong, right? Uh, we say, right, God's word is good. And so even if I don't understand it, right, I will honor it as good. Right. We, whenever there is a dispute between our wisdom and reason and God's or God's word, yeah, it's always best to bank on him. Absolutely. So we have the this very beginning about the limitation in serving, right? She'll serve six years and then he'll go out on the seventh for nothing. Uh, that's a fascinating concept. Yeah. And actually, you know, when we talk about things that sort of confound us a little bit, as we look at this from our modern perspective, this is sort of a different instance of this, not where we're sort of like, well, is it, you know, what, what, what is God saying here? Or is that fair? Uh, maybe it is, I guess we might ask still if it's fair, but the idea here is that, you know, I, I think we have trouble even taking this in, but the idea here is that the Israelites uh, had this followed the days uh, and then one day of rest after those six days of work I should say uh, and here they also had this pattern in terms of years uh, and that on the seventh year was the year of the Lord's favor and there were certain things that happened there uh, and one of those was that debts were relieved and as uh, as we said before slavery in Hebrew times here was largely a matter of paying off debts um, now again I'm not saying necessarily that the seventh year was the year that this would happen I think this was much more related to when they started the slavery right the, that started the the clock regardless of where they were in this other pattern of of years uh, but it has this very similar ring to it that that the debt can only be paid for six years, uh, then it is relieved. And if the debt is relieved, well, then the slavery is also ended because that's the paying off of the debt. I don't know if I confused things more than helped there, but hopefully uh, made a little sense of it. Well, if I want to muddy the waters just a little bit, when I think of a modern equivalent, I think of uh, credit reports. So if you're someone who has a negative item on your credit report on any of the three credit bureaus, it actually falls off after, you guessed it, seven years. And I don't know if that is intentional in terms of whenever they decided that that was the case. It's like, oh, well, let's look to the Old Testament about their regulations conserving servitude. Probably not. But at the same <laughs> time, I think it's interesting that, you know, if you have a bad debt or you have a charge off for you know, just something you have to have a car go back or whatever happens in your life, you know, those things appear negative on your credit report. They affect your ability to borrow in the future. 
but they literally drop off your credit report in most cases in seven years. So I just think that's an interesting correlation uh, and, and not completely foreign to what's going on here. If you've given yourself over into servitude because of a debt that you owe, then you know for a fact that you will not have to repay that through your labor for more than you know six years. In the seventh year, you go free. Unless, of course, a sabbatical year comes up earlier, and then you get off the you get off the hook even earlier. Uh, but even in those cases, this also relies on people who understand that they have a debt and want to make amends for that. We also think of modern day slavery, and let's be honest, in terms of our judicial system. A person commits a crime; they're then their freedom is then taken away. Oftentimes, they are put to work, and at the end of their time, what do we say? They've paid their debt to society, or at least that's what we should say. So when a person gets released from prison, then it should be as here. They should be um, considered having paid their debt. Uh, all of these things, I think, are are interconnected in terms of God's natural law, uh, but I just I find it fascinating. And, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I don't know. What do you think? No, I, I think you are right. And sometimes, you know, we find in culture that people are following God's wisdom, even when they don't know they are, right? So, you know, they're they're doing something. And if you ask them, why seven years? I, I don't know, right? But uh, but it really comes back to some of this wisdom that's that's been passed down uh, from God, you know, in this whole time. And of course, you know, when we're talking about all this idea of debt, and then sort of a forgiveness of debt, you know, we, uh, with our, uh, you know, know, uh, ears of faith here, you know, we can't help but kind of also go, wow, right? Look at this, right? There's this real sense of sin uh, having consequences, having a wage to be paid. And yet then that God in his mercy has arranged for those debts to be forgiven. Maybe we want to save that for a little bit, but, you know, I think sure. it's certainly throughout this section, we do want to kind of look at things in that regard also. Well, another interesting thing from this passage that we read is this idea that if a slave goes in single, he comes out single. If he goes in married, he comes out married. Um, that kind of makes sense to us, right? You know, he goes in uh, and he comes out the same way. But then it says if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, then those sons and daughters and the wife uh, stay with the master. And, of course, he can decide to stay with his family. Uh, and I think that would cause for some pretty awkward conversations come six years later, and it's in the seventh year, and he's like, well, see ya, honey, see ya, kids. I'm off to uh, get some camel's milk. I'll be right back. And then he doesn't stay. Or he could you know, become designated a slave forever for the sake of his family. Now, that one, I guess, would be harder for us to understand from, uh, I'll just say it, from like a human rights point of view. This is where I think our modern reasoning really butts up against whatever God is doing here. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And and particularly this idea, you know, that if the slave is, uh, you know, given a wife and then they have children, to me, that's the hardest one is to say, well, you know, yeah, you know, in our mind, well, shouldn't that, that marriage and that family be honored above all else? But there is just a simple equity that, 
you know, as we saw in the first, like you said, the first part doesn't bother us. It's, yeah, you you leave with what you came in with, and that's good and well, except until it's people, and then we kind of go, wait a second, you know. Uh, so I think that is one of those where, you know, I didn't find a, an easy explanation to just, you know, make me feel at, at, at perfect ease with how that all worked. And like you said, what that would really mean uh, in reality uh, but then I think, you know, this, those next verses are super helpful in that we understand that maybe because of this, right, many people, or at least some, did just stay with their master uh, forever. Um, I found it interesting uh, in one of my resources, it said this, you know, uh, boring through with an awl, sort of an, an ear piercing was actually done like up against the wall house right and so uh, you know the sort of that that all would go through your ear and then into the house as a very vivid picture that now you were bound to that household uh, you know must have been quite something to to see I don't think anyone could have missed the symbolism um, in that but this idea that is kind of odd to us is you know that I'm gonna stay a slave. But why? Well, because I love my master, my wife, and my children. And again, we might even say, okay, I get the wife and children. If this is how the law was, yeah, maybe you stay for your wife and children. But he also says he loves his master. And I think this is an important thing to get is that, you know, the Bible uses the language of slavery for us Christians as well, that we are slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. And at times, again, as Americans, we can go, boy, I don't like that, right? Let's not talk that way. Uh, but at the same time, it makes us recognize that if you have a good master, it is not bad to belong to him. If he takes care of all of your needs and simply gives you tasks to do every day, that's not a terrible life. Uh, and so I think it is important that we do understand that here, that a good master makes for this arrangement not being a constant burden. Well, and it shouldn't go overlooked, and you have it, you've illustrated it, but I want to re-illustrate it, that this is, for what, for what it's worth, the choice of the person who was put into slavery. It's his choice. So he's being told he could go free, and despite, I say, the compulsion to be with his family, he's making this choice of his own uh, his own will, his own bounded will. So he he's like, I, I'm going to stay either for the sake of my family or because, as you, as the scripture here points out, because I love my master. It's a good deal. I mean, I, I've been working for him for seven years. He's a good guy. Uh, you know, I, I you know, who knows what brought him into that situation? Again, this isn't going off into foreign lands and 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 stealing people as in the Atlantic slave trade. This is someone who willingly entered into the situation. And I, I don't think, and you mentioned it at the top of the show, but I, I really don't think we should ignore how connected this is to the, the modern means of employment, the way we think about our jobs. We voluntarily, often for the sake of our family, go into employment. Sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes we get into it and we stay because the money's good or we stay because we like the job. But we stay ultimately because we benefit from it. In this case, he benefit originally by having his debt paid, and he benefits now by either being able to continuously take care of his family with really just his labor on the line, or he can go off and, and do what he wants. Now, 
I think, and we're getting close to a break, so I don't want to get into it too much, but then the next part is, again, a very troublesome that we've already read, and this is where, and I'm going to assume in cases of poverty and other things, where a daughter is sold. Uh, and that's and that's really, really hard. For, I'm a, I have a daughter, um, and she is uh, obviously my world to me. I have a son, too, uh, and she's only 11 now. Uh, and sometimes I wouldn't mind maybe you know, putting her off on somebody, but <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that permanently. She's my whole world. You know, you know, we can kind of joke about the frustrations of raising daughters and then having to pay for them to be married and then the pain, really, of seeing them go off with someone else. I couldn't imagine what would cause a man to need to to resort to selling his daughter. Like instead of looking at it as, oh, what a horrible situation. We might do well to think about the horrible situation that would precede such a thing. Yeah, no, I mean, again, like you said, I, I actually have five daughters too, you know, and, and so it's, you know, one of these things where this is, is so hard for us to understand. And I think the only, you know, sort of just, I, I guess, practical comfort to this is that in many cases, what he was ultimately doing probably was, you know, uh, sort of arranging for her a marriage where she was going to be then provided for, right? We'll get this word later that, well, actually, I guess it was in the verses you read, you know, that, uh, you know, the the food and the clothing uh, and intimacy and all those things are her rights then, right? So it's, again, it's not that he's just selling her into a bad situation for bad things to happen to her. It, it appears from everything I read here that he's in one way actually trying to help his daughter. And I get it. It still sounds weird to say that he sold his daughter into this, but he's actually kind of arranging for her provision in the future as well. Well, there is something to be said in this time. You know, one must be able to take care of a wife, and that's one of the conditions upon you know receiving uh, the, the the permission or the blessing to marry a woman. We even see that with Joseph. He he's off preparing. He's betrothed. He has a year to make a house for uh, the mother of our Lord, and so this is not a bad thing in the way that we look at it. But again, that language of selling and the desperation behind it, yeah, that can be really tough. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we marinate on that while we take a break. But folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Hoppy and I will continue with Exodus 21. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Philip Hoppe, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Before we jump back into the text, I just want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were just finishing up talking about some difficult subjects about, you know, having to sell yourself or your children into slavery, um, different times, different places. But God had in him in his mind uh, a way of protecting their life in the verses that follow. We have some more that deal with this fifth commandment and protection of life and uh, how to deal with these situations. But before I read, say, verses 12 through 21. Anything else we want to make sure is out there? No, I think just even in those situations, again, where we find these uh, people being sold into slavery for various reasons, again, we just want to remember that these laws are given to protect them even while they are slaves, right? And so, again, this is not God just saying, well, if you get in a bad situation, uh, you're going to be sold into slavery and that master can treat you however he wishes, right? Now, these laws are precisely given so that they might be protected and taken care of even while they are slaves. So now we're going to read verses 12 through 21. These are uh, uh, several different laws, one right after the other, and then we'll treat them one at a time. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if you did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoor with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Okay, wow, uh, lots of uh, shall be put to death. This certainly puts to death the idea that capital punishment is not something that God uh, has established for the world, you know, the state or for the sword that the state bears. You know, people, we talked about this a little bit yesterday when we got to the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill means the unjust uh, taking of someone's life, not things like just wars and capital punishment. You can be against those things, but you just can't use the fifth commandment as a reason to be against them. Well, here we see that being put into practice, but let's start at the top. It seems like he's making a distinction between premeditated murder, homicide, and uh, and say, uh, you know, uh, what, what would we say? Um, manslaughter, that's right, So, right. or yeah, non-premeditated. Yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's the differences here? What's going on? Well, and I think this is, again, you know, if you ask your average person about this topic, I think they would understand that there should be a difference between the two and how, and yet I'm not sure, again, they would say, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's based on Exodus. Um, so there's wisdom here that is, uh, I don't know whether it's 
continent or again, whether it's just been, you know, passed down through, uh, you know, all the years from God's giving it. Uh, but I think, you know, that the overall idea here is that life is precious, right? It goes all the way back to Genesis 9, uh, where it says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. And so there's this whole idea always that life is precious, human life in particular, because it bears the image of God. And so when one strikes out against man, it is one of the most kind of um, evident ways that you are striking out against God himself. Uh, that while you may be trying to kill a man uh, through your disobedience and rebellion against God's ways, and, and this sounds ridiculous, but you're trying to kill God, right? You're trying to get rid of his authority over you. So that's kind of the thing underlying all of this. Like you said, the fifth commandment certainly uh, you know, highlights that as well. But then there is this idea that, you know, regardless of how one is killed, um, the, the relatives of that person are likely going to be quite mad. And this, you see this in the justice system also, that while I said most people, you know, if they're not emotionally attached would say, yeah, there should be a difference if someone planned for three months, you know, to kill someone and wrote about how they hated them terribly and all these kind of things. And, and someone that accidentally say, you know, is driving their car and accidentally hits the gas pedal instead of the brake and someone's life is taken, they would say, yeah. But then again, if you're the family members, <laughs> you might well not be able to make that distinction in the heat of the moment. You might say, no, they should get everything that, you know, someone who uh, had premeditated uh, would, you know, be receiving. And, and that's where we see here God's wisdom that he even provides this, uh, you know, idea uh, that the person can, you know, run off to a place of refuge uh, until the actual sort of judge is uh, gives his rendering on what has happened and what uh, should happen then to this man. Uh, but again, it's it's interesting here because one life has been lost, and yet there is a concern here that the other man, if it was truly accidental, not premeditated, well, then his life should still be protected, at least again, until it can be determined otherwise. You know, if again, if the judge finds no, it was premeditated, we, you know, we actually found that he said he was going to take his car and go after that guy. Well, different story then, right? Uh, but, but, you know, we get all of this just where we see how much God values every human life uh, that he can't allow anywhere the taking of that life to be done lightly. Well, and speaking of not considering distinctions, when we get to the next verse, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. I assume strike here isn't just sort of smacking them, or maybe it is. I, I get the idea from the Hebrew that this is a severe injury, but regardless, when it, you talk about you know fighting against God or attacking God himself, that's no more clearer than in the office of father and mother. And so striking or attacking uh, your father and your mother, God says even that, that's, be, that's to be put to death. That's, that's very strict. Yeah. And like, I think you put, you know, good bounds on either side. One is to say that this is not, you know, you 
you hit your dad on the shoulder, you know, and, you know, a little loving kind of tap or whatever. Uh, but at the other time, it's striking that it's not killing your folks, right? It's any sort of, you know, this real violent attack on your father or mother, you're to be put uh, to death. And I'm not sure, I don't, I didn't really, I guess, look this up, but I don't know if this is reflected in our modern laws. Uh, I would actually kind of not be surprised if this is faded away from law because we sometimes really don't get this connection of how important these authority figures are in our life and of course the unbelieving world doesn't always or probably never gets the fact that this is you know also teaching us how to deal with god right since he it's his authority ultimately acting uh, through these people. And so I don't know if there's anything, you know, in law today where if it's your mo- father and mother, there's a worse penalty or not. But it does make sense here if we really understand how God has arranged the world. Well, uh, you know, my background is in criminology. And so while I'm certainly not an expert or an attorney, I guess what comes to my mind is that it is age related rather than authority related. So for instance, There are elderly abuse laws, so if you attack someone who's elderly, it can have a severe penalty in some jurisdictions. And thanks be to God, there are child abuse laws that prevent you or hopefully uh, prevent people from abusing children. But in terms of like because it's your parents, I think it's more about because they are elderly. If you're a younger person and your parents aren't elderly, I don't know that there's any uh, weight to those punishments which now you've sent me or will send me down a rabbit hole because that that is fascinating (laughs) because we certainly have like laws that increase the penalty, say against a peace officer or there are laws that increase the penalty against say a a judge or someone in authority, a a congressperson. But yeah, I don't know if parents are, I've never heard of that. So that's, that's fascinating. But, but in our fourth commandment understanding of father and mother being the source of authority or the foundation of all authority and representatives of God on earth, then we definitely see why it would be more strict here. Um, and yeah, we and keep going with, well, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say with, you know, the commandment, right, with the promise, we always talk about that fourth commandment. And this puts a little bit of practicality behind that, right, to honor your father and mother, that you may live long with, you know, we read that as modern people and we go, okay, uh, it'll be well with you. That's just kind of a nice idiom. But literally, if you did not honor your father and mother to the point where you were attacking them, you would literally be put to death for it, or at least could be, and therefore you would not live long in the land that the Lord your God was giving you. Yeah, God has made that sort of transitional commandment there extremely important and highlights it being the first command with a a totally positive promise for keeping it. Uh, the next part talks a little bit about the, the Atlantic slave trade, or at least it addresses it. It's not talking about it specifically, but it's talking about the sort of thing that we mentioned earlier, that you mentioned earlier, that forbids uh, going and stealing people and selling them into slavery. God has some severe penalties for that too. Same one, death. Yeah, and again here, I think the Hebrew allows either that this person has stolen someone and sells him. I mean, that part is clear in the Hebrew. The the next phrase where like in the ESV we get, and anyone found in possession of him, as the ESV renders this, makes it seem like, okay, we know that he kidnapped this guy and sold him to someone because his neighbor is now, right, got him in his possession as a slave. But the Hebrew also allows here, I think, for the idea that uh, 
this man himself has possession of that man. So he either kidnaps him to sell him or just to put him to work. But either way, this is really, um, you know, again, treated as a severe uh, sin. And and this is important, again, in our world where people do like to say, well, you know, the Bible is just, you know, it, it was all for slavery and it would have been for slavery and, you know, all those kind of things to say, well, let's go and look at this verse that deals specifically with what we know occurred in our country and tell me that the Bible is coming out for that, right? We, we need to know these things so that we can sort of defend uh, God's name among the nations. It seems misplaced right there in the middle because the next verse says, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death as if you thought he was done protecting moms and dads. But so I don't know why Moses chose or how it got to us ended up having that in the middle. But 15 and 17 are very similar. You know, you can't strike your mom and dad. You should be put to death. And now it seems like the burden has been, uh, well, lifted a little bit. Now it's even less. Whoever just curses his father and his mother. Um, Probably that curse is a little bit more than just sort of bad mouthing them, I would say. Humiliation, something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder why they're separated. But regardless, we have this next part. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought about that and read about it, and I couldn't find either a reason why, you know, that other one is sort of couched in the middle. I was trying to figure out, was there something here with parents that would, you know, be related, but I honestly just couldn't come up with anything. But, but yeah, like you said, there is definitely, you know, um, a lowering even of the bar here to say, you know, essentially, if you're speaking words to your parents that speak of violence and death, I think would maybe be the easiest way to understand this. Again, you can be put to death for that. Well, and then the next part talks about not killing your slaves. Also important, right? Because life is um, important to God. It's his gift to us. Uh, although, it, again, rubbing against our uh, sensibilities, we have this idea that if you beat the snot out of your slave, but he survives, well, then that's fine. Uh, maybe that's a too uh, callous rendering of it, but I'm certain that's how people would look at verses 20 and 21. Yeah, and this is one of those things, I guess, that you know, if we hear this word with a rod that's in there, right? This should remind us of other scriptures where we're actually told, right, that a, a you know a man should not spare the rod on his son, and so. This seems odd to us again, right, that this slave would physically discipline, or I'm sorry, the master would physically discipline his slave, but that is what's being talked about here, and that's not being spoken of in a uh, a negative light, and yet there is this protection, right, because it's almost like God is saying, this needs to actually be disciplined right? If you are just mad and angry and you're so uncontrolled with your use of the rod that you end up killing your slave, well, then you've gone over the top. Uh, again, we would say this with parents and children, or at least I think most of us uh, in Christianity would admit that different forms of discipline are needed and are uh, valid. And yet, right, if we saw somebody that is just, uh, you know, uh, using some something they call discipline, but to the point where their child is incapacitated or, God forbid, murdered, then we would say, whoa, that, that went way beyond trying to discipline your child. 
Well, I'd, we have just a little bit of time left, so I'd like to get to the next section. So we are going to move on, but I'm going to treat the next passages on their own. This is chapter 21, of course, verses 22 through 25. This can be a difficult passage. It is one that both supports life and also has been used against Christians uh, and, our, and our fight or standing up, so to speak, for the right to life. Let's read it. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Uh, that's just the end of that portion. Now, I will say, just to kind of lay it on the line, the reason why I said this is sometimes used against Christians is because there's been a twisting of the words to indicate that when it says when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out but there's no harm, they'll just be fined. Uh, critics of the Bible and critics of the frankly clear reading of the scripture say that when the children come out, that is a miscarriage. But then by describing the miscarriage as no harm, they mean no harm to the woman, and that when the when there is harm is when the harm is to the woman. And so they say this is evidence that God does not consider children within the womb to be uh, living, and therefore it supports their pro-choice ideals. Um, that's certainly not a position that I hold. It's one that I've heard, though. I don't know if you've heard that, but take us through what this does mean. Yeah. And so I, I think here, you know, again, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, and this is where reading this in its overall context here is just the point here is never to find life that is not of value. <laughs> I know that was sort of a double negative, but I hope it's understood, right? That nowhere in here we like, well, that, you know, again, you could, and certainly people I think did in our country say, well, the life you know, the slave is not really valuable or certainly not as valuable as another life. But in this whole section, I think everything is pointed at saying, no, every human life is made in the image of God and therefore is to be protected. And so when we can come to something like this, where there could be, you know, an argument to be made in the Hebrew for what exactly is being talked about, I think we have to go to the side of saying, well, what's everything else in this section said, which is that there, uh, you know, that the harm spoken of, I mean, may well be to the woman as well, uh, but it's also that harm that is done to the child in the womb. And, and therefore, it really does speak to the fact that that child in the womb uh, bears just as much value as anyone else. I mean, in, in one sense, you, you might almost say here that, you know, why would the issue of a pregnant woman even be brought up? up if it was not that that child inside of her um, was a thing of value. I mean, you know, people often say this is pictured as perhaps, again, yeah, you know, two men are fighting and sort of the, the wife gets in between them and says, stop this, you know, kind of. And we certainly do see that at times. Um, but again, you wouldn't even have to have a pregnant woman in that case to speak about her being harmed in that process. Uh, so I think the very fact that it mentions a pregnant woman and her child really points us in the direction that God is.
Well, there's no disagreeing with that. I think that's exactly the way that we should take it. We should understand it in its context always. We shouldn't go to it and try to twist the words to meet whatever sort of definition we're wanting to get out of it, right? Eisegesis. But at the same time, I yeah, I like the point that you made. Why even mention a pregnant woman if it's not related to the fact that she's pregnant? So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think I think so. I think, you know, that that helps us just again, you and I read this and and we kind of know, right? Because we know the whole value of life in the scriptures and we know also the value that is placed other places on children that are in the womb, of course in this Advent season, I think we often think, especially of John the Baptist and Jesus in the womb. Uh, but you know, it's it's something that we know, but we might need to, with the rest of our world, ask some of those questions. Well, we aren't going to have time to really cover it, but I do want to get the rest of our text in, which is through verse thirty-two. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but he has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So there seems to be a pretty important distinction between, uh, I would say, liability here or negligence. If a man has a, a, a boar, and I mean an ox, and it, and it bores somebody to death, and he didn't know that that was going to happen, I mean, what can you do? But if it gores someone, uh, bores a hole through him, uh, and, but he knew it was a problem ox, then yeah, he's liable. That's at least how I see it. Uh, any any quick take on that? Just here, I think, you know, maybe to say in general is that, you know, I see that God holds us responsible for the hurt or harm we do to our neighbor's body, right? I mean, all of these kind of relate to that. Uh, and therefore, you know, through that, we see how much God values uh, man who has been made in his image. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the way to look at that. And we see throughout this whole text here a, a great example of how God is passing down some case laws so that the judges can, well, continue to judge these things. According, They have no experience. They've been slaves in Egypt, and so now he's giving them automatic precedence so that they can, you know, help judge things. Well, I tell you what, uh, we're come toward the end of our time together. I would like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Philip Hoppe, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. I look forward to having you on again. I hope you'll join us uh, in the future. I'd be happy to do so, and I've enjoyed uh, discussing this with you. That's great. And yeah, this is an interesting text. I think we sometimes avoid it as we do our personal Bible study, but you know, it's so important. When we talk about the law of God, we think of the Ten Commandments, but here we have those Ten Commandments in action. Do they still apply today in terms of their, you know, their civil law authority? Maybe not in the exact same ways, but there are morals behind it that are eternal, and that's what we look forward to um, to striving to live by as, as Christ sends his Holy Spirit and enables us. Folks at home, thank you too for joining us. Tomorrow, God's laws and statutes and codes now involve the issue of property rights and restitution. It shows that God is not only concerned about the spiritual welfare of his people, 
but how they deal with one another. It also gives us insight into the idea that private property is not something that's against the Bible because we see here God upholding and protecting private property among his people. Well, I hope that you'll join us tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.